Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is John Harris, the CEO of Alternative Investment Management, a 20-year-old investment firm that started as a family office and has evolved into managing over a billion dollars in hedge fund and private equity strategies on behalf of a range of business and investment executives. Our conversation starts with the formation of AIM and its people-based investment approach. We discuss building a network to source and diligence managers, filtering the universe of prospects, understanding the motivations of managers, conducting reference checks, 
and using that information that they gather. We then turn to AIM's private equity strategy, including selecting managers, the misalignment of interests and co-investments, and the death by a thousand cuts of hidden fees. We close by talking about the continued purpose of hedged funds, due diligence tricks, preparing for unexpected risk, managing time, and philanthropy. Please enjoy my conversation with John Harris. John, great to be here with you. Great to uh, be here with you today, Ted. It's a real privilege and a real honor as I've had great respect for you for many years. Why don't we start with sort of what AIM is? Sure. So AIM, which is a very original name of Alternative Investment Management, was actually brought to us by the lawyers about 20 years ago. We started investing with another family that we had known for really the last 40 years. They had us set up an office here in New York because neither family was based here. They asked us what our name was, and we said, it really doesn't matter. It's just the two families. They ended up, well, what are you going to be doing? We said managing alternative investments. And I think they probably spent about four minutes coming up with the original (laughs) name of Alternative Investment Management, LLC, and sent us a nice big invoice for that. The way we look at ourselves is we're a family office investing for our family across a lot of different asset classes. But two areas that we've brought outside partners in is in the private equity and in the hedge fund space. And there's an old saying is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and good things will happen. My wife likes to say that's not very difficult for me. And I keep reminding her she's on my side. But we've ended up creating commingled entities on both those asset classes with the idea that we could bring in CEOs, retired CEOs, heads of private equity firms, former government officials, with the idea that we could be more than just capital and that we could be value add. We joke that we're like a dating service. We always say that Match.com has nothing on us because we're constantly putting our managers in touch with former CEOs or other industry experts who hopefully can help them do a better job investing. And if they make an extra dollar, we all win. But even more importantly, if they help them prevent from losing a dollar, we all win as well. So let's circle back to, you know, you mentioned we and the family and matchmaking. Where did this all start? It all started with my father, who was an investment banker with Solomon Brothers and Lazard, always in Chicago. He was originally born and raised in New York and couldn't understand why anybody would live in New York when you could live in a great city like Chicago. Well, two of his three kids now live in New York. He just sort of shakes his head, but he loves coming to visit his grandkids, so he's back here often. But he always approached his investment banking days on relationships and was always very focused on doing the right thing and being willing to tell people, no, you shouldn't do this deal, even if it meant that they didn't get paid for it. Because he said, if you think long term, good things will happen. If you're short term greedy, you'll end up stumbling at some point. He did a fantastic job personally making the transition from investment banker to an investor. And even when he was in his investment banking days, he sat on a number of investment committees. And back then in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, he gives Cambridge a lot of credit because they were the consultant on many firms. And the different funds would come in, present to the committee. He would be able to do his own checks and then make a decision whether to invest or not. And growing up, he used to drag me to manager meetings. I like to just point out that he also took me to a lot of ball games and we did other stuff. So we had a a normal father-son relationship, not just analyzing managers back then. 
But when he retired from investment banking, one of his best friends asked him to join up. It was Jay Pritzker, who he had great respect for. And when I was eight years old at school, I had to give a speech on the person I most respected outside of our family. And I chose Jay just because I always admired the way that he approached things, the way he did deals, and the way that he always was willing to ask questions and know what he didn't know. Do you remember the first manager meeting your father brought you to? He would bring me to a lot of investment committee meetings, and I would be dragged along, which was always fascinating, back with Northwestern Memorial Hospital, going back over 20 years with the Michigan Endowment, a number of different foundations. So some of the early managers were Madison Dearborn, which I eventually ended up working with. It was Red Point. Summit Partners was one that I remember very early on. And that's one that you remember, especially considering how well they did. Yeah. So how did you get started in the business? So I did investment banking before my senior year while in college and had a great experience at Bear Stearns. But I remember one morning standing there at about probably three or four in the morning on my way home, ready to come back about an hour or two later. And I don't have any problems working hard, but this was 93 I had a great experience there, but I decided to do something different. And I ended up going down and working on the Senate Banking Committee in Washington. I got thrown into doing international finance issues, which included back then the Mexican peso crisis, the Daiwa Bank crisis, Swiss Bank and the Holocaust funds. I worked on the Ron Sanctions Bill. So it was an amazing experience. And I would wake up every day petrified that they would figure out that I had no idea what I was doing. But I eventually learned that I probably was in the majority, not the minority. <laughs> so I had been told, spend two years down there and then get out. Because if you spend two years, the next election comes, you have a tendency to say, I'll wait till the next election. So I was on my way back to business school at Northwestern when my mentor, who was Jack Kemp, the former congressman and quarterback, got tapped to be the VP candidate. I had told him that if he ever ran for the White House, I would drop whatever I was doing and go work for him, which I figured was a safe promise because he had done so poorly in 1988 and 92 that there was no way he was going to run again. So I got the call early August. It was uh, late July, early August, right before the San Diego convention. And he said, you ready to go to work? So I called the dean of the business school and I said, Dean Jacobs, I need a two-year deferral. I'm going to take a year off, work on the campaign, and then work in the administration. He replied, John, take one year. It's all you're going to need. You guys aren't going to win. <laughs> I said, thank you for that vote of confidence. So I ended up working on the campaign, was deputy of the campaign manager, traveled. We did five states in a day. You start believing how important you think you are when you have all the motorcades and everything. But quickly on election day, you were reminded that we weren't that important as we lost, obviously. So I needed a job in Madison Dearborn. John Cannon and Paul Finnegan at Madison Dearborn Partners offered me to come in. They said, come in, we'll teach you private equity, we'll beat you up, and we won't pay you much. I said, how could I turn that deal down? I got my first paycheck and was just laughing because I said, if they knew what I was making on Capitol Hill, they would think this is a lot more, even though on a relative basis. So I spent a year at Madison Dearborn, had a fantastic experience learning private equity, ended up going back to business school where I spent my summer in London with Goldman Sachs in investment banking and private equity. How did you think about getting the opportunity to work in private equity and then going to a place like Goldman as opposed to where people often go from Goldman, they want to work at a great shop like Madison Dearborn? 
I just thought that the respect I had for a number of people I knew that worked at Goldman, the opportunity to be in London was amazing. They ended up sticking me on a deal. They said, first they said, go find investment opportunities because this thing called the EU's coming up. And being able to really work through Goldman and try and utilize all the different resources, it's obviously limitless. And I think also having that on your resume and that experience and the network that you develop from there, there's probably not a week that goes by that I don't talk to people from Goldman. But they also brought me a deal. They said, B Sky B wants to buy Manchester United. I said, who's Manchester United? In all fairness, this was 1998. They said, you have five minutes to figure it out or else we're going to pull you off the deal. And I ended up running down and my assistant, who was from Ireland, I asked her, who's Manchester United? And she just shook her head and walked away. Fortunately, somebody told me, so I was able to run up and make sure that I was able to stay on the deal team. The deal ended up obviously not going through, but it was a fascinating experience. And being at a place like Goldman, surrounded by so much brain power, and really, if you're willing to be proactive and network within the firm, you meet people from all the different desks and all the different areas, as well as all the different resources. So I decided to try something different after business school. And George Walker, who's now running Newberger, had come up with this idea that I really described as the first outsourced CIO at Goldman. We were over the wall working with large institutional families, a lot of times pre-transaction. The idea was to have open architecture, really tapping into all the best and the brightest that Goldman had to offer, trying to build that relationship with the investment banking team, looking at some of the unique deals that came in. And, And back then, you had venture deals that were showing up on your desk every day. Bikini.com was one that came through that everybody seemed to want to go do due diligence on. But fortunately, a lot of the deals weren't done. I ended up moving to Chicago as they opened up the group and decided that I wanted to do something different. And at that point, one of my dreams in life was to be able to work with my father, who's been my mentor and a great advisor, and I've learned a lot from. And so at that point, it was just our two families that were investing, and we started it here in New York. It was myself and one other person, Adam Lavin, which is about the time that we met and started doing meetings together. And it's amazing thinking that we now have some summer interns who were born after that. So it's a good reminder how quickly time goes. So when you take a step back, you had mentioned investing in private equity and hedge funds, but for your family's capital, what was the breadth of activities you were doing? So my father always taught me, first, it's people and really trying to look and seeing who are you partnering with, alignment of interests. He had a fantastic and still does a great knack for figuring out what motivates somebody. And so We looked across different asset classes, but we're big believers in private equity and hedge funds, long only, across the board. But at the end of the day, it was partnering with smart people who were aligned with us and trying to take advantage of the opportunity to be moving in the same direction with the same interests. So almost all the time when we talk to people in the business, people say, oh, it's a people business. We want the best people, the best partners aligned. And I know you've taken that very, very seriously. So a couple questions and let's dive into people. The first is, what are you looking for when you say great people or people first? It really goes back to one thing that without it, nothing else really matters. And it's what are they trying to accomplish? 
and how do they view the partnership? And so there are people out there, there's some of the greatest managers out there that could go raise as much money as they want to, but in private equity, they cap their funds, whether it's long only, whatever asset class, they may have capped their funds, or they've even returned capital on the hedge fund side when they've gotten to a size that they feel they can't manage as well. And so many people out there can't even imagine the thought of saying no to incoming capital. And yet some of these managers who I think that if you were to ask me, especially on the hedge fund side, if there was one characteristic to predict a successful manager, what would it be? I'd have to say is, are they willing to return capital? Because are they willing to really think long term? So why does somebody get up in the morning? And I can guarantee you that if a manager's objective is to go to the right and your objective is to go to the left you're going to end up going to the right. And do they treat you as a partner or really as a limited and then in all small font partner? Let's talk about finding these managers because what you just laid out almost goes hand in hand with scarce capacity. And if there's scarce capacity, unless you've already been there, you can't get in. So it's great that they're doing that and you can recognize it from the outside, but you can't get in. When you make your new investments, how do you go about that process of sourcing? Back 20 years ago, and when we were doing this, it was first on the hedge fund side and the long only side, it was looking under every single rock. I remember many trips with you and others that we have mutual respect for is really talking, traveling places, trying to figure out who was unknown. I mean, if you start thinking back to many of the great managers like Viking or even Steve Mandel, when they launched how difficult they had in, in raising capital. With the evolution of capital introduction, with evolution of conferences, it's really hard to find those unknown managers these days. So one of the questions that we love to ask managers is, if you were to go retire to a deserted island and you wanted to invest your own money, who would you give it to? And so we've been able to source a lot of great ideas that way, talking to a number of our friends who are putting their own money to work, I also believe you have to give to get. So when we find investment opportunities that there's more capacity for, we immediately want to share it with our partners because not only does that help, but it also helps with our partners who then share ideas with us. And that's one reason that we eventually took outside capital in to invest alongside us. And we did it as a commingled. And you and I have joked a lot about fund of funds and what are fund of funds. And my friends always love to tease me and, and ask me, how's the fund of funds business? And I really view it as a multifamily office where having a commingled entity with outside partners investing alongside us creates no conflict. If we take 10% with a manager for our portfolio, Anybody that's with us gets 10%. So it's not, we'll give a little capacity here, a little capacity there. And so people are also finding having these partners who are located throughout the country and throughout the world are coming to us saying, hey, we're taking a look at this manager. What do you think? And so that's also a great sourcing opportunity. We also have a lot of CIOs. We have people from trading desks. We have bankers. We have lawyers who are personally invested with us. And it's great if you and I may be friends, but if you're getting a statement and you have some money with us, you're definitely thinking about how to introduce us to great managers as well as give us good references. So it's pounding the pavement. It's on the private equity side. It's going places. Birmingham, Alabama, Little Rock, Charlotte, North Carolina, 
Portland, Oregon, halfway between Houston and Dallas, Kansas City. So a lot of places, being from the Midwest myself, that I love are a lot of places that, especially on the private equity side, have many of these great managers who are not looking to be the biggest and the best, but have a great reputation around their neighborhoods. I got a bunch of things coming up. So let's start with that last point. How do you think about the benefits of being in a geographic central region compared to some of the places you mentioned, which are clearly off the radar of Wall Street? I think that individual work, doing your unique own homework matters. I think it's always good to know what other people are doing. I remember us talking years ago about how you could look at 13Fs and back in the day where the Crescent Court was the place in Dallas where all the hedge funds were, is that you could actually just by pulling up their 13Fs, you could tell who had lunch together or who went to the gym together. It's hard coming up with your own ideas. And especially a lot of people feel they can be wrong, but they can't be alone, which is one reason that you see tremendous overlap in the hedge fund industry. Private equity industry is a little bit different. You used to have the club deals, but those are on managers that are much bigger. And so being in more remote locations where there's less competition allows them to develop that relationship with the patriarch or the matriarch who's running the business, who says, I got five years left. I want to roll some money, but my kids aren't going to get involved. I need somebody I trust. It's first a relationship transaction. And then obviously the financial transaction has to make sense. But many times our managers are not the highest bids in some of these more regional areas. It's because people trust them. They know what they're going to do with their business and how they're going to be as a partner. And how do you filter that broad network of relationships? If someone's sending you something, you don't have any statistically significant data. They're just throwing a name of a manager they might like. What do you do with that? I always like to joke that I'd rather be around somebody who's wrong 100% of the time than somebody who's right 50% of the time, because then at least I can make a quick decision. And I won't mention names, but I have a couple friends that are pretty good indicators that way. It's really why is somebody making an introduction? What has their track record of introduction? How do they do their own homework? What is their motivation? And it goes back to why do you get out of bed in the morning? If somebody's introducing me to a manager because it's an old buddy. Okay, I understand that. I'll, I'll still take the meeting, but is this really somebody that they're going to put their own money with? And we spend a lot of time with our data bank utilizing and tracking and capturing information. It's also then taking a quick look and saying, what did we know in the past? We track, I'm almost at 30,000 LinkedIn connections, which leads to a bit of an issue because I'm getting many emails or calls from friends saying, hey, I see you're connected on LinkedIn. Could you introduce me? And I'm going, I have no idea who this person is. We use my LinkedIn account as a firm. And so when we're meeting with managers, we'll connect to everybody within that firm. We then are able to get graduation years so we can see everybody that went to Yale and being able to find a warm connection and making a warm reference call first allows us to save a lot of time because a quick no is the second best answer you can get to. So we try and start off our initial meetings with, okay, who's referring it to us? Why are they referring it to us? And then we want to go through the background. And most people when asked is, hey, tell me your background. They say, well, after college, I started this. We like to go back to where did they grow up? 
Why did they go to the college that they did? What did they do for the summer? Was it a friend that they had at college that introduced them to investing? Maybe we know that friend. Did they do an internship with somebody that we know? And really walking through their background and the number of times that partners have been sitting next to each other in a meeting where we ask a question, one partner says to the other, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you did that for your summer. It was always amazing. But we want to understand so that we can then use that first meeting, use that information to make warm reference calls and quickly figure out, is this something that's one of the greatest managers out there? Are you excited? And by limiting the number of managers you invest in, if you're investing in a manager, is it better than what you have? And so a lot of times the quick no is very easy. What are you trying to tease out in those reference conversations? One, you can call somebody's reference list. And I would say I guarantee that you're going to get good references, but I've actually called somebody on somebody's reference list and they said, I didn't even know that I was on their reference list. And I can't imagine they did. The number of times we've called reference lists where people have said, oh, you're the first person to call really is amazing. So I always say it's a check the box work where due diligence is probably 80% check the box. And that means making the warm reference calls. But before we do a reference call with somebody on the list that we don't know, we look at their quick bio. And is there somebody that we know? Because if it's somebody that went to Yale with you, I can call you up and say, hey, Ted, did you know this person? And you might say they were in my class. They're going to give you a very different feedback than if I just call up cold. So it's almost doing references on the references before we do it. But then it's also looking and saying, who do we know that knows this person? And going back, and if they came from a prior firm, we have 20 years of documents, presentations. We utilize the database to be able to see where people used to work. It's figuring that out. And there have been times where we were doing a reference on somebody. We saw that they used to work at this firm in 02, and this was about five years ago. We pulled up that reference list, and there were a number of people on that reference list that were not on their reference list 15 years ago, we were able to call. Turns out there were a few issues. We would have never have called those people if we had not had that database. So let's say that example happens. You found out something 15 years ago. Maybe there were some issues. Sometimes those are really damaging issues. Sometimes they're judgment. But now it's 15 years later. What data really that you gather really matters in assessing who these people are? Everybody makes mistakes. So please don't ask me all my mistakes today. But we have a saying, which is past performance is not indicative of future performance unless you're talking about one's character. And at the end of the day, it's all about character. And it's how is somebody going to treat us? So if there's an issue in the past, we want to know what it is, what happened, why it happened. And again, we're going for a quick no. So we're okay missing great investments. But if we're looking at an investment that we made three years ago where we knew something that had happened in the past, we're going to kick ourselves. And there's enough great investments out there that we're probably overly cautious. And I got a list of managers that I didn't invest in that I wish I had. I also have a list of managers I did invest in that I wish I hadn't. But you know, thinking back and trusting your gut on this, I would make this number up. But 99% of the time, you're happy that you didn't go with something that was questionable in the past. And what's a laundry list of examples, obviously, without people's names, of things that happened in the past that led you to pass on a manager? 
So a manager was sharing information with one investor and not others. We found out and, you know, having relationships and knowing who other investors were, that person ended up coming back and pitching me a new investment about 10 years later. And that was an easy no. We've seen issues with how people have treated their teams. We've seen issues with people that they were associated with. And they say you're guilty by association, but why did they partner there? Something went wrong. They may not have been involved, but why didn't they see it? When you see somebody who maybe gated somebody in the past, and it's usually they give you one story, but then you dig and you find out that that story is not necessarily 100% true. Somebody said, is I go into every meeting assuming people are going to lie to me. I said, you mean market? And they said, yeah. And so maybe it's a cynical view, but I need to figure out when somebody gives me an answer What's a follow-up question? I mean, it amazes me as people ask some managers is what's your capacity and they give you an answer, but the person doesn't follow up with, well, how did you get there? How did you think about it? The other question that I always love is whenever somebody says, I invest it like it's my own money, which I think is probably a hundred percent of the time is we simply follow up and say, well, what's your personal K one look like? And the amount of managers who sit there and say, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Let me get back to you. And I'm going, well, how could you invest it like it's your own money if you don't think about how you're doing after tax? And so it's just making sure that you ask that second or third follow-up question, as well as doing the homework beforehand. So being able to ask some questions that you already know the answers to, but you can ask them anyway. So one of the ones you mentioned in the hedge fund space in particular about how these managers treat their employees. I happened to watch the last episode of Billions last night. So take an Axe Capital where you might not want to be treated the way Bobby Axelrod treats his employees. That maybe isn't a great example because it's set up and written in such a way that he's sort of- I was going to say there's a whole bunch of other issues. There's a bunch of other, but let's just assume it's just the culture and not there's any unethical or untoward behavior going on. Is that a bad thing? Is that something you avoid? Or is it something that drives people to success at your benefit, even if you wouldn't want to work there? Sure. I work for Senator Alphonse D'Amato, who was a fantastic senator, and I got yelled at. There were even a few swear words that I didn't even know existed. So uh, growing up playing sports, I had coaches yell at me and really sort of push me. So it's really understanding what are they doing? What's the relationship? What is the type of people that work there? And so what is the real culture at the end of the day? And is it a team? Is it a family that can argue all day long and yell at each other and still move forward? Or is it somebody who's just ego driven and the only way they know how to communicate is through raising their voice? So it's really sort of figuring out case by case, bringing people in on January 1st, just for the sake of bringing people in on January 1st. I know plenty of people who do that. You know, at the end of the day, people sort of see through it because how they get treated during good times, you got to always sort of think about if that's not so great, how will they be treated during bad times? I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year, 
That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Let's dive in a little bit on private equity. Uh, you have pools. You're managing your own capital, but some other people's capital as well. What do you look for when you're picking private equity managers? The first thing is, what is the strategy? And what is their edge? Everybody that comes in and that pitches private equity, I think is almost required to say, I have proprietary deal flow. There's a joke recently about three people on a panel, and the first two say, we're asked, do you do auction deals? The first two say no. The third one says, I do, because nobody else does. So proprietary deal flow in today's world is very difficult. But there are people who do have it and are able to create an edge. So when looking at private equity, I want to understand why is somebody doing the strategy that they're doing, especially at the size that they're doing. Size can be a real hindrance. It can also be a very positive in some strategies, but in the strategies that we're looking at, which are real fundamental growth, adding value post-close, helping improve the management team, maybe the son or daughter were head of sales and they did an okay job. So it's finding people who are out there pounding the pavement are willing to say no. And one of the biggest problems in private equity today is how do you make a name for yourself? So if you're a 35-year-old VP at a firm and the firm's been successful, you're not going to get credit for passing on a deal. And you only get paid for the stuff that you do do. So it's how do you create a culture of walking away when deals are too big, too high in value, they're not the right deal. So when we evaluate a fund, it's What's the team motivated by? How do they work together? How do they source? How do they negotiate the deal? What value do they add post-close? As well as then how do they exit? And so finding some of these smaller managers who are capping their fund size allows them to be there. And as I mentioned earlier, many times they're not the highest bidder, but they can add value. And we work closely with them, going back to the dating service, is that there are many times where people will say, we're looking to get in the hotel space or the retail space. And being able to go to many of our partners who are the CEOs or former CEOs and making introductions and helping them think about that adds a lot of value and opens up doors. And so hopefully... If they end up with another contract because of us, we also spend a lot of time introducing our private equity managers to each other. When we see portfolio companies that can be value add to some of the other portfolio companies, we'll make those introductions. And it's just not just being capital, but hopefully being able to help to the bottom line. And do you have a bias for a certain size fund? So we focus on about $500 million or between four and 600. We do invest in some larger funds. It really comes down to strategy. 
but trying to find some of the smaller funds where I always love the term emerging managers, yet they have already had a successful career. So sometimes it's people coming out of bigger shops who want to get back to the basics. It's also people who are earlier in their career. There was some study, and I haven't been able to find it, but I think it was Fund 2.9 is the best performing fund. And we had a Michigan endowment meeting, and I brought this up, and somebody said, how do you invest in Fund 2.9? Do you do you wait Fund 3 more than Fund 2? And the answer is you, you don't know, but it's really figuring out why are they doing another fund? Are they passing the business on down to the next generation? Are they increasing in size? You have co-investments, which everybody wants to do these days, which I think is an example of limited partners hurting themselves. You have many people who are doing co-investments because they can sit and go back to their board and say, well, we used to put $200 million into a manager. Now we put $100 million into the manager, but do $100 million in co-investment, and that's at no fee. So we just blended our fee down in half. But what it's forcing managers to do is go up in deal size. And there was a frequent survey from a couple of years ago, and it was, why do you do co-investments? And they asked limited partners. Limited partners, I think it was 43%, if I recall correctly, said for better returns. And people could answer with multiple answers. You go to the GP side, I think it was 86% was to build a closer relationship with the LPs. And then there were a number of other items. And nowhere on the answers were better returns. And so I think that that says it all. So I think that the whole co-investment phase is going to be a great opportunity for many of the restructuring funds because people are just paying way up. They're pricing some of these deals at perfection. You have people who don't have the resources that are going way up in size. And it's all being driven by the limited partners because they think that that's what they want. Or you have family offices who are convinced that they get shown the the great deal. And we always say is that if an energy deal ends up on our desk, we want to know why did it get out of Texas? There's a lot of experts in Texas. And so you got to ask yourself, if you see a direct deal, why? And there's an old survey where they asked people, how many of you think you're an above average driver? And 92% said, I do. And so you got to, one, I want to meet the 8% who claim that they weren't above average drivers, but everybody thinks they're an above average investor. And so they're doing co-investments. And I think that that's going to end poorly. As you're navigating this private equity world, as you said, there's almost an insatiable demand by LPs now to invest in private equity funds. And- the terms start to ratchet up, right? So it becomes favorable to the GPs. We saw this in the hedge fund industry, kind of pre-crisis. That didn't end particularly well. I know you wrote a piece recently trying to shed a light on this. Why don't you talk a little bit about that work? Sure. So some of my friends at large private equity firms had asked me if this was my Jerry Maguire moment. We have always been vocal, and people joke we get on our soapbox, just about pointing out things that we don't think are right. And it's really not about right or wrong, but it's more about what people should be focused on. And we say that nobody is forcing limited partners to sign these sub docs. Nobody's forcing them to wire the money in. So it really was written with calling out limited partners. And there's a number of things that you've seen, as you always do in the cycle, which have become very GP-friendly. ILPA has done a decent job, but I always point out is that the best disinfectant is sunlight. And so many of these things, people, people being the managers, don't want people to know. And so 
whether it's digging through the audits and looking at other expenses. It's whether it's looking at what they're charging. And it may not be a lot of dollars. And we wrote a similar piece on the hedge fund side years ago because we had talked to a manager who was charging the Wall Street Journal to their fund. And I said, listen, I will personally pay the $99. Another manager had gotten up to about $3.5 billion, was charging travel. And I said, listen, we are big fans of Hyatt, so here's my Hyatt number. And if we're paying for the rooms, use my Hyatt courtesy number so I get the points because those are my points. And he looked at me like I was crazy. But to his credit, he he stopped charging and he said, okay, that's what the management fee's for. So what's the laundry list today of things in private equity that are rankling you? Looking at, it's almost like a death by a thousand cuts. There's Everything is moving a little bit here, a little bit there. There's not one thing that can necessarily be the golden nugget answer, but it's everything from on the clawbacks. And so for the funds that aren't doing deal-by-deal carry that have the European waterfall, they have clawbacks. And what you're now starting to see is something as silly as when money is clawed back, we haven't seen this you know, since 08, 09, is that it's clawed back post the tax bill that the general partner paid. And so to me, that's bad enough. So is a manager collects incentive early on, collects incentive off of early deals, later deals go poorly, so there's a clawback. They've had to pay a tax on that. So they say, okay, we'll give you what we have net of the taxes we paid. By the way, then they get a credit. But what you've now had put in even is it's at the highest possible rate. And I said to one lawyer, I said, Forget the fact that you should have you know, intermittent clawbacks to minimize the possibility of it, is why does it need to be at the highest rate? And they said, well, it'd be too complex to calculate what each partner's tax rate was. I said, so you're asking us to trust you to handle the financial books and records of a number of underlying portfolio companies, but you can't just look at their K-1 and talk to their accountant. And they said, no, 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 but you don't understand. I said, oh, I fully understand. So it's little things like that. And it's silly things like, I always love going to these annual meetings. You sit next to somebody and say, oh, wow, this tote bag is great, or this charger's great. And I said, well, you should enjoy it. You paid for it. So it's everything on that front, but it's key man provisions that you're seeing like what type of key man provision? Is that it is so wide that I could drive a truck through it. And it's if the manager's not involved for 120 consecutive days, why not make it 60 out of 120? You know, it's a, somebody pointed this out as the weekend at Bernie's. You know, they roll the, the manager back in. And, you know, listen, at the end of the day is that if we're going to these terms, something's really wrong. So I describe it almost like a prenuptial. You hope you never have to use it, but that's what legal agreements are. And many of the managers will make the comments of, oh, well, we would never treat our partners that way. And we always say, then put it in writing. Or our lawyers told us that this is industry standard. And I point out, I said, hang on a second, aren't those the lawyers that we're paying through org costs? And organizational expenses have gone up. You know, you're seeing $3 million for a fund for, they've already done all the docs. And so now all of a sudden you're using private planes, you're using things like that. The management fee offsets, which used to be managers could get paid for really anything is being on a board or sourcing. You then went to the offsets where it was 80-20 or 120. You're starting to see things like, well, if it's below this dollar amount, it doesn't count. 
those are our dollars. And if a manager is not making enough money off of management fee and they give you the, oh, whoa, me, and you point out that they have raised three funds, if they do well, they'll get paid. So it's figuring out how to really align the interest and it's not a heads GP wins, tails LP loses. So a lot of these, as you say, they're small things that add up. But do you use them as a sign if you're in front of a manager that you really like and industry norm is just shifting slowly in their favor, will you turn down a fund because they didn't want to bother with the $2,000 kind of advisory bill that they got? No. Listen, at the end of the day, you got to say, what are you going to make net? And I always joke is that if you look at whether it's a David Tepper and Ellie Simmons at SCF or you know Don Edwards at FlexPoint, is if they called me on a Saturday morning and said, hey, I need you to come wash my car, I'd go wash their car. They have been so fantastic and you get what you pay for. So many people have moved to, well, I want to reduce fees, which has led to the co-investments. I'm more than happy to pay in fees. I actually wake up every morning saying a prayer that I'm going to pay the most in fees that year that I've ever paid. But I'd rather be paying an incentive. And I don't want somebody to make money just for showing up. They got to have skin in the game. And you're seeing a lot of different games, whether it's the utilization of lines of credit, et cetera. Then at the end of the day, we got to make a decision is, is this person looking to be a partner? And do we think that the overall net return will justify any fees that we pay? So it's not a litmus test, but a lot of times these small things tell you how somebody's going to treat you. And if they're doing something that's dramatically in their favor just because they can, wait till the difficult times. And, and you and I have had plenty of difficult conversations with managers, and they're not as nice as they were when they were marketing to you. Right. And are there situations where your gut instinct just told you, you know, these little things are adding up. We just need to move on to the next one. Many times. And there have been plenty of funds that went on and did very well. I joke that it was a good thing we passed because we saved on the amount of taxes we would have had to pay. So it's, you know, how do you spin it? But it usually doesn't show up for a few years or a few funds. And I think that what's important is that you got to trust your gut. It may not show up early on, but eventually it comes out. People's true colors show. And whether they get caught or not is a whole nother thing. But I'd rather make sure that I'm sleeping well at night. And again, it's there's not a lot of investments that we need to make. So I want to go to bed you know, and sleep soundly. You know, I have two young kids, so whatever good sleep I can get, I'll take. So across your portfolio, let's call the portfolio private equity in this case, you're so focused on getting the right people and the best investors. Do you find that most of the time you're effectively a price taker? That you're choosing the manager, they're in-demand managers, you're trying to be the best partner you can, but all this work you're doing on saying, oh, it should be this way and we should do it that way, doesn't really make that much of a difference because you're trying to find, in your estimation, the very best guys and you're going to go wash their car. Absolutely. I mean, there are many cases where we are price takers and we have to make that decision and it's going in with eyes wide open. But there are also a number of cases across asset classes where we've been brought in early and a manager who we just invested with, who was oversubscribed, sent us their legal docs and said, 
let us know what you think. They didn't take every single piece of feedback, but they took a lot because they are focused on a partnership and they said, they listened to what we had to say and they said, I agree with you on that. And there were others that say, I hear you, but I have a different view, so we're not going to change it. And so if it's a conversation, and again, this leads to what type of partnership is it? And we're not looking to chisel away every single dollar of fee or look for the lowest price. We just want a fair deal. We want a level playing fair deal where the manager has an opportunity to make more money than they ever thought and that we're going to know that if they do well, we'll make money. And if they don't do well, we're not, but they're not getting rich off of that because many funds are structured as the greatest transfer of wealth from LPs to GPs. Let's turn over to the hedge fund side where that relative power or relative demand for dollars has shifted in some ways. You're still a strong supporter of hedge fund strategies. How do you approach hedge funds today? I'll just correct you on one thing. It's hedged. We like to throw the extra D in there. We still think that there's some managers out there who truly are hedged and will help minimize the downside. We don't think that somebody should put their whole portfolio in hedge funds or any asset class for that matter, and that it's figuring out what part of your portfolio. So if I look at my kids and I look at my parents, they have different risk tolerance and different time horizons. And so it's figuring out that my parents probably should have more hedged strategies that maybe they give up some of the upside, but they also sleep well at night. My dad loves to say he loved growing up in the Bronx, but he just doesn't want to go back there. My kids, thinking about investing for my kids or for some of the foundations and endowments that are partnered with us, they're not looking at month-to-month numbers. They're not looking at quarterly numbers. And it's also finding managers who aren't worried about how did you do this week? How did you do last week? I always tell people is if you were to let me decide post-fact how long each month was, I could give you all positive months with low volatility. And I think that people have hamstrung many of the managers um, with weekly numbers, with not being willing to take a down month. We added to many managers because our feeling was had they gone dumb overnight. Maybe they did a couple dumb things, but if they learned from it, that's some of the best opportunities out there. And you mentioned hedged and wanting managers that are hedged. What does that mean numerically to you in terms of market exposure? So again, it's building a portfolio. We don't have many market neutral managers who are tied in, but we do have some managers who will run with lower net. It's having a portion of the book hedged where it's not a paired book and that typically it's an alpha generator. We have a couple managers that have made money on the short side since inception, going back to whether it's 14 or 2009. And so it's utilizing a piece of the book that they can make money on, but also make money when things are difficult and aren't just full beta. And too many managers, I used to laugh when I first saw the 110 10 mutual fund, 110 long, 10 short. Then you saw the 120, 20, 130, 30. I was waiting for the 140, 40, but I think they all blew up before then. And so people that just short the indices and call themselves a hedge fund, by definition, after fees, you can't beat the market. 
And there's not a lot of people with experience on the short side these days. There's not a lot of people that are willing to spend the time on it. And I get it. And I hope that over the next 10 years, our hedged portion of our overall portfolio is our worst performing portion of our asset allocation, because that means that everything else went up. So I think that if you're a fund of funds, that you're only looking at the hedge fund space, you need to be up all the time. And we're very clear with our partners is we're going to underperform during up markets. And I think we proved that the last 10 years, unfortunately, but is that during times of difficulty, you'll be glad that a portion of the book is in there. And we always show the old power of negative numbers and people forget if you're down 20, you got to be up 25. If you're down 50, you got to be up 100. Those are big holes to dig yourself out of. And we want to avoid those. What are your favorite due diligence tricks? One that I'm worried is actually going to be taken away from us because Uber just announced that they're no longer going to allow people with low scores to use Uber anymore. But we always will bring up in the meeting, we'll get the person to show us their Uber score. And I think everybody knows old is what matters is how you treat people that don't necessarily matter or can do anything for you. And so it was how does somebody, you take them to dinner, how do they treat the waiter, et cetera. And so we were in a meeting, we saw somebody with a 3.9. I couldn't end that meeting fast enough. You got to really work at that to get a 3.9. <laughs> we spent a lot of time looking at where they worked on the education front, trying to find out, you know, who did they go to school with? Newspapers.com. So my daughter had a family tree project. And so I started on Ancestry and then I got introduced to newspapers.com. It's amazing the stuff you find. And we have found articles about some of our managers from their teenage years, maybe swim meets, whatever it may be. But it's really digging in is who is the person and what drives them. But the best part of newspapers.com is some of the really funny pictures that you're able to find, whether it's some of the yearbooks and some of the fourth grade pictures that hopefully we then try to utilize to get better terms, or we threaten that we'll publish those pictures on the internet. I know that across your investing in people, you've also for a long time talked about some risks in the market and the system that aren't necessarily the same ones other people talk about. What are those risks that you see and what do you do about them? So there's some risks that you just can't do anything about because you just don't have any control over them. But if you're not aware of the risks out there, I think you're at a disadvantage. And so we spent a lot of time. I worked on terrorism back when I was in the government and worked on the Ron Sanctions Bill. I had a lot of friends who were in the intelligence community. And so we're constantly looking and, you know, unfortunately, we lived through 9-11. We lived through the blackout. There have been, I think, over 35 attempts, including a recent one in New York. And people have really sort of forgotten about that. And even though you can't do anything about it, you can't walk around every day being afraid, you can be prepared. And so people laugh at me because I have a defibrillator in my car. If you're having a heart attack and somebody uses a defibrillator on you in the first seven minutes, the chances of survival 
I have a water bob, which lines your bathtub and you can fill water in and then you can close it up. So the day of the blackout back, was it 03 or 02 or 03, everybody ended up in my apartment. We had water. We were able to flush the toilet. I also had my fridge stocked. We lived above a brick oven pizza place. So I had everything planned out. <laughs> so it's constantly looking. My friends also think I'm crazy, but they also say when something bad happens, they're coming over to my apartment. So it really takes that and says, okay, well, what can happen? And in today's world with the political implications, it's difficult to understand what what's going to come out of Washington. But it's thinking about what are your real risks. And I think that going into 08, a lot of people thought about what is your net exposure. Not enough people thought about what's your gross exposure. And you ended up, a lot of people lost money on both sides. So it's making sure that you're looking at it and being prepared for it and having a plan. And having a plan that if something happens, it's kind of break the glass, here's your plan. You don't have to stick to it, but at least you've thought through it. And I think that that's really important on the investing side as well, as well as everybody on our team gets a flashlight and a smoke mask and a whistle when they join. We have go bags. So I always say, as anybody who makes fun of us, you know, doesn't get it, in 2000 for Y2K, my dad, who I really sort of learned this from, bought two porta potties. And my mom said, that's so nice. You got one for each of us. He said, what are you talking about? He said, one's for me and one for anybody who doesn't make fun of me. So we all thought he was crazy, but it's insurance that we all have fire insurance. We all have life insurance. Why not have that when thinking about the portfolio and being prepared? One last question before we turn to some closing questions. Those of us who've been around, you know, you're deeply involved in philanthropies. You are apt to cancel dinners at a moment's notice over and over and over again because of some important work that you're doing. How do you think about allocating your time and how do you spend your day? So not very well. It is my objective for 2019, as it was for 18, 17, 16, and 15, is to be more efficient because time is the most valuable commodity. So I'm climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in a couple of weeks. So I have been getting up early and that's kind of the me time. We got a dog who, for some reason, even though the kid said they'll walk, I end up walking. <laughs> so it's trying to be efficient and surrounding yourself with a team because you can't do everything. And I feel very fortunate with the team that I work with, and it's having people you can rely on. So it's making sure that I try and get a workout in. It's trying to make sure that you also schedule free time and my wife always says, that's crazy. You shouldn't have to schedule free time. But the fact is we're trying to do a lot. I also am working on not saying yes as much anymore, which my team says, if we're not doing a manager, just say no. You're doing them a favor and you're doing you a favor. And time with friends, time with family is the most important thing. So I want to read more. It's not always easy with young kids and eyesight that's going but podcasts. And I'm a diligent listener to you every week and just trying to figure out how to be efficient. And it's not easy. We've started using a little timer clock in my office. So when people come in and they say, I need five minutes, I set it to 10 minutes. And so it's getting rid of that 
extra sort of sit around time. But my pledge to you and our, our group of friends who have dinner on an ongoing basis is I'm not canceling. Well, I'm going to do my best not to cancel. <laughs> Because then I end up stuck with the bill. (laughs) How about philanthropy? You've been deeply involved for a long time. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of the organizations you're involved with and how you spend your time with them? Sure. So growing up, we used to go with my parents. My dad volunteered as Santa. I was his helper. I remember as a kid, and we were giving kids tennis shoes and a winter coat and watching how excited they were receiving things that I took for granted was a great lesson. And my parents have always been very assertive and you have great advantages in life, take advantage of them and give back. And I also think it's important. I do stuff with my kids, have been involved with Robin Hood and UJA and others. And having the kids come along and do things has been the best and most rewarding because you start seeing it, especially from an early age, And it's hard. We only have so much time out there, but I think it's one of those things that we all need to do in whatever way that we can. All right, John, leave a little time for some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Is there time? Michigan sports. Die Hard was born with a maize and blue spoon in my mouth and can't get enough. And my daughter, when she was three, could sing the Michigan fight song. Any particular sport? football and basketball, but very excited. The baseball team made the World Series for the first time in 30 years. So anything that's maize and blue. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who don't do what they say they're going to do. And your words, your bond. And if you can't do something or you're not going to do something, I'd rather hear it, even if it's something that I really need or is really important, but it's just not showing up and, and not doing what you promised. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? There's plenty of them. It's really sort of goes into the the outside of investment, but it's not doing what you said you're going to do. And it's when you put into your documents that you're going to do a certain thing. And then all of a sudden you find that you're telling me one thing, but I find out the truth is completely different. I just don't have time for that. Life is too short. Is there some piece of reading, you mentioned one reading more, that you almost never miss? Besides the New York Post, which has more breaking stories, I I don't think they believe in a second source. So you get a lot of breaking stories. Some are wrong, but the one I think is is probably cliche and probably others have said it. But I've been fortunate to be reading Howard Marks' piece since 1999 and have a relationship. Been fortunate. And he sent us some nice emails from some of our letters, which is the biggest. It's like Michael Jordan telling you that you got a great jump shot. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Don't do anything that you'd be embarrassed for somebody to find out. And I used to always say it was something that you don't want on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Since having kids, it's something that I wouldn't want my kids to find out that I did. If I'm embarrassed by that, don't do it. And that's stuck with me forever. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? That everybody, including close friends, don't always have the same objective as you. And you can't get upset about it. You got to understand everybody wakes up and needs to do what they need to do. And that sometimes it may be counter to what you're trying to do, but it doesn't mean that they're a bad person or they're trying to harm you. It's just everybody has their own objectives and even some great friends who think about you and are there for you. You know, sometimes there's times where you say, why would they do that? And the fact is, is that you got to just always remember people are doing their best every day, especially if they're your close friends, and you have to accept that. John, always fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. 
Ted, a, a real privilege. And thank you for doing the podcast. Us and our whole team love it. So keep it up. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Honored Bob. to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 